How would you answer this question? Who are you? Suppose you had a, a cocktail party and someone says, tell me about yourself. Who are you? How would you answer that question? In my years of experience in asking people this question, usually what I get back is some form of a resume. They tell me what their current employment is, maybe what their former one was here in this community. Oftentimes, I'm told whether or not they've graduated from Texas A&M and what class they're a part of. Oftentimes, it's filled with accomplishments, and those aren't unimportant. But is that who you really are? Do you remember that time in the movie Rocky, when Rocky was going to go up against Creed, this monster of a fighter, and what he wanted to do more than anything else was to be able to stand toe-to-toe with him. He wasn't even trying to beat him. He just wanted to last to the last round. And as he's telling his girl about this, he says, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings, you know, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, you see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What a beautiful line. (laughs) And a picture of this fighter who wanted to accomplish something so he could be something and not just be another bum from the neighborhood. But let me ask you this question. Do you have any inherent worth apart from anything that you do? Some people would say no. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., the former U.S. Supreme Court justice, once said, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Or how about the brilliant Stephen Hawking, who said, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. Maybe they're right. Have you ever had a time where you've stood outside on a clear night and looked up at the stars and wondered just about the purpose of it all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why are we here? Maybe maybe we're all alone. Maybe we're just chemical scum. Maybe we have no more significance than a grain of sand. Maybe we really are just another bum from the neighborhood. What if that were true? And more scarily, what if we treated each other that way? Wouldn't that be hell on earth? But what if there's another way of thinking about this? What if there's a view of humanity that is much grander and much loftier than a version of humanity that simply exists as chemical scum? The scriptures give us just such a view. And it helps us to see one another in very high and lofty terms. And if we could see one another like that and actually treat one another like that, well, that would be heaven on earth. And so we're going to look at Psalm 8 today. And we're going to call our study today, Crowned with Glory and Honor. So let's pause and ask the Lord to teach us, to to mold us, and to shape us into the kind of human beings he wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, the question of who we are gets to the core of our identity. Some people would say we have no identity apart from what we do, apart from what we make. 
Some of us are on an endless search for our identity, wondering who we are. Perhaps a little freaked out of the short time we've got to make an impression on this world before we pass on. Lord, would you help us to see ourselves the way you want us to see ourselves? Would you help us to to dial in and listen to your voice and to hush all those other voices that would tell us that we are just a bomb from the neighborhood? Help us understand your purposes for us in Christ and what Christ has done for us to help us realize and live into the glory and honor with which you have crowned us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage starts out by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. That word Lord in English is repeated, but in the original language of Hebrew, it's not. It's two different words. In English, my translation capitalizes all the letters in that first instance of Lord, but it comes from a Hebrew word that simply means the the eternal one or the self-existent one. And then the second instance of the word Lord is actually another Hebrew word that simply means the sovereign one. So put together, the psalmist is saying, O eternal and sovereign one, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's enraptured in praise. And everywhere he looks, he sees evidences of the majesty of God before him. Wherever he casts his eye, whatever his gaze falls upon, he sees unmistakable evidences of the fingerprints of the one who is majestic, the sovereign and eternal one. I heard someone the other day said, we really need to have a theological discussion about the significance of the color purple. <laughs> I love that. As I was preparing this study, I remember those words of John Calvin, the great reformer, who said, there is not one blade of grass There is not one color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. And that's exactly what's going on in the psalmist's mind here. He's singing out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. As I was working through this, I was reminded of the time when King Solomon built this temple according to the instructions of the Lord for the people of Israel, as he wanted to to manifest his presence there. And in the dedication of that temple, Solomon prayed these words. He said, The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built for you. The psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name above uh, in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Earth cannot contain it. The heavens cannot contain it. It is, it is supra-physical. Uh, it, is, it is beyond belief. And so he goes from considering the, the grandeur and the majesty of God to something that seems relatively small and helpless. The mouth of babes and infants. He says in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. In this hymn to the creator of all creation, we hear a discordant note. The existence of, of those who cast themselves as enemies, as those who avenge. And here the psalmist says to this eternally existent sovereign one, 
Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. What does this mean? He knows that God loves to work with that which is considered weak and fragile and do great things out of it. What's interesting about this passage is that Jesus actually echoes this in his last week before he's crucified. We're told that he had entered Jerusalem and the crowds hailed him, shouting, Hosanna! And this one particular time during that week, Jesus is in the temple and he's healing people coming to him. And the children are crying out that song, Hosanna to the son of David. And we're told by the gospel writer Matthew these words. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? I wish I could have been a fly on the wall at that moment. Jesus is doing incredible things, what can only be described as the miraculous. This should be softening hearts left and right. And these children are responding and singing praise to Jesus, the son of David, the descendant of David, the one promised to David who would would ascend his throne and reign. And these kids are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And these religious leaders are going apoplectic, indignant. They are livid. And they just burst out, Jesus, do you see, rather, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Here Jesus paraphrases the psalm that we're looking at today. And he tells those people who are standing in opposition to Jesus, to those who are casting themselves as his enemies, that God has ordained praise from the mouth of these little ones. And what Jesus didn't say, which would have been left for them to fill in the blank, was that these children are shouting these words to silence the enemy. Anyway, we could spend a long time looking at that, but let's jump back into Psalm 8. The psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Here we can imagine the psalmist outside, like maybe you were once as a child, looking up and wondering, are we alone? Does anyone care about us? Some people put hope in maybe finding extraterrestrial life. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that we find it. Would they be any more significant than humans? Wouldn't they just be chemical scum? However brilliant they might be, wouldn't they just be bums from the neighborhood? Here the psalmist is looking up at the stars and the sky in front of him, and he is just in wonder of how God could be mindful of him. That this creator who who cast these galaxies, and we can see much further than he could ever do, But this one who who painted the stars and hung them in place and calls them by name. Does he care for humans? It's another way of saying, God, do you see me? Do you care about me? The psalmist says in verse 5, as he continues his song, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
as he contemplates how God could possibly be mindful of people like you and me. In his very next breath, he says, you have made him, that is humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings. That word heavenly being is is an interesting Hebrew word that just simply can be translated as spiritual being. What's interesting about this word is this is the word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 when it tells us that in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And so, is it possible that what this psalmist is saying is that God has made us just a little bit lower than himself? It's certainly a possibility. It could also be translated as angels, and the New Testament translates it that way as well. But notice what it doesn't say. You have have made mankind chemical scum. You've made mankind just bums in the neighborhood. It doesn't even say you've made mankind, humankind, a little bit higher than the animals. God, you have made us a little lower than these spiritual beings. Not only that, you have crowned him with glory and honor. What does that mean? What does that mean, and when did God crown humanity with glory and honor? When we go back to the opening chapters of Genesis, we find God saying these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, uh, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may have noticed from these words on the screen that I highlighted that word image. It's an interesting word in the original. It most commonly is used in the Bible to describe an idol, as in don't worship idols. Idols in most cultures around the world are just physical representations of something that are infused, at least in the mind of the beholder, with some kind of spiritual significance. But what we're told here is that God created his own idol, It's not made of rock or stone or marble, but rather it's made with human flesh. And God breathed into this this idol, this image, his own breath, and mankind became a living being. But what's interesting, my friends, is that in the ancient world, only kings were considered to be made in the image of God. Only those who were super important, those who weren't the bums in the neighborhood, they were the ones that were considered to be super special and created in the image of God. But what Genesis tells us here is it's not just the uber-important who can be considered made in the image of God, but everyone, every human being, man or woman, boy or girl, old or young, rich or poor, everyone has the dignity of being created in the image of God. J. Richard Middleton, in his scholarly work called A New Heaven and New Earth, helps us understand this. Listen to what he says. It's not just some elite person, the king or a priest, who manifests God's presence on earth. Rather, the entire human race and each person, male and female, no matter what their social standing, is made in the image of God. The Bible radically universalizes and democratizes the image of God and applies it to everyone. My friends, do you see how radical this is? No one in the ancient world was saying anything like this, that every single human being has inherent dignity and worth apart from anything they can do. Yes, that's exactly what the scriptures say. 
Philip James Bailey said, let every man think himself an act of God. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind us editing that just a bit and saying, let every man, let every woman, let every boy, let every girl consider himself or herself an act of God, infused with dignity. And not only that, but crowned with glory and honor. I think this is why C.S. Lewis at one place said, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Now, don't get him wrong. He's not saying that humans are gods and goddesses. But he says we are godlike. We have been made and designed by God to be godlike, to be representatives of God. And so because of that, there are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. And so God has created people with dignity, but we're also told in that opening chapter of Genesis that, that he, he did something else. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see that word dominion? That is royal language. And I hate how it's been misused and how humans have, have taken the power that they've been given and has used that as an excuse to plunder this earth, to do our own part in destroying it. But see here, my friends, originally God gave humanity royalty in granting them the responsibility of dominion. And that same word dominion is what the psalmist used in Psalm 8 as he continues his song. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Can't you hear him echoing that first chapter of Genesis? Crowned with glory and honor, humans are given the distinct privilege of ruling creation with the Creator. Think back when God created those first humans that he placed in the Garden of Eden. What a a paradise that would have, I mean, I would love to see that. I can only imagine with my wildest imagination what it must be like, and then I'm sure it even falls short of my imagination. But one person wrote this. He said, the Garden of Eden was an unfinished masterpiece. It was beautiful, and more importantly, as God said, it was good. But part of the reason God made human beings was to make it even better. He gave us the responsibility of taking the earth and rearranging it and and making things and creating culture. And if you just think about some of the the amazing things we've been able to take of this earth and rearrange, next time you're flying, let's say in a transatlantic flight, let this thought capture you. You're sitting upon rearranged earth, hurtling hundreds of miles an hour through the sky. That actually freaks me out. (laughs) But just think of all the wonderful things that we have. Our phones, the internet, something called Wi-Fi. And Mexican food. Oh, the things that we've been able to do with this world to take its potential 
and to bring it out, to make this good world an even better place. And that causes the psalmist, as he reflects on it, to end his psalm with these words that he began with. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If I can summarize our study, I'll put it like this. Human beings are given the sacred and royal calling of being human. You and I are given the sacred and royal calling of being human. We've been created in the image of God. We've been crowned with glory and honor. We are designed to live and move in this world in such a way that enhances and flourishes those around us. And so let me just bring us three quick points of application as we think about how can we take this, what we've learned today, and live it out as we go through this week. The first point of application is this. Let's consider each other as royalty. We have the option of considering one another as just a bum in the neighborhood, as chemical scum, as having no more significance than a, than a grain of sand. But how might things change if we were to believe that every person has been crowned with glory and honor? How would it change if you, if you looked at your family and considered them to be crowned with glory and honor? What would it mean for you as you interact with the person at the checkout counter and seeing them being crowned with glory and honor? How might that change the way that we interact with people? How might we be able to interact with them in such a way that honors their, their inherent dignity and the fact that they've been created in the image of God? But you say, John, sometimes people make me not want to recognize them that way. <laughs> they do difficult things, and they don't seem to mirror very much what God has done. I asked Miranda if I could use this as an illustration, and for some of y'all who've been around for a few years, you'll remember this. Uh, one time when Miranda was about seven or eight years old, she came in and just announced to the family, when I grow up, I want to be a queen so I can boss everyone around. <laughs> I don't know what was going on between her and her brother. She obviously was not very happy, and she thought, if I could just have some power, <laughs> I can make people do what I want them to do. Miranda wanted me to make sure that you know that she's repented of such an attitude. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens when we want to take the power that's been entrusted to us and try to control others around us? What happens when the fact that we've been crowned with Glory and honor, we take such blessing and we use it to harm and abuse those around us and treat them in terrible ways. What happens when we, we abuse that responsibility of dominion that God has given us and we don't care for this world that we live in? My friends, don't you see that what we desperately need is a new kind of human being? Don't you see, my friends, that, that we need someone who has been entrusted with power and used it not to harm or abuse people, but rather who uses it to love and to serve others? My friends, that's exactly what we find in Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that he is the image of God. He's the image of the invisible God. In the Greek, it's not using that Hebrew word, but it's translating that Hebrew word as an icon. Jesus is the icon of God. If you want to know what God is like, 
Look no further than the Jesus Christ. He is the perfect representation of God. He is the one true human who perfectly images, who perfectly mirrors, and takes the dominion and honor and glory that he was crowned with and used it to serve others. There's a time when the disciples were having some squabbles and Jesus had to talk with them and he called them to himself and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus says, when you look around at this world, you see people abusing power, bossing people around, using it to serve themselves. And he said, this should not be the case with my followers. And then he said, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever first, I'm sorry, who would, I'm sorry, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, my friends, in giving his life for us, Jesus not only demonstrates that he's a different kind of human being, he demonstrates that he's a different kind of king. He's a different kind of royalty. Instead of taking up power to serve himself, he gives up power in order to serve us. You see, in his death, Jesus was crowned, not simply with a crown of thorns, but the height of humanity's power crowned him with condemnation, with disgust, with degradation, with contempt, with reproach, and with humiliation. This beautiful king who did all things well, humanity crowned him with shame. But you see, my friends, when the world threw its very worst at Jesus, he bore it not simply as a sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He bore it as the reigning king of kings. He tells us no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down. And if he lays it down, he will take it up again. And so Jesus, even as he reigned in life through love and service, reigned in death on the cross, bearing our sins, and through death into resurrection, he reigns now in eternal life. And the scriptures tell us in the book of Hebrews, for example, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, my friends, because Jesus tasted death for everyone, because he is the true image of God, who in his resurrection was crowned with unparalleled glory and honor, he now has all authority in heaven and earth to dispense his gifts, preeminent among which is eternal life to people like you and me. You see, when we turn to Jesus we find out for the first time who we really are. Who we were designed to be, who he redeems us to be, who he restores us to be. See, God not only, I'm sorry, Jesus not only introduces us to God, he introduces us to ourself. And he helps us to see the worth and dignity with which we've been created and the length with which he was willing to go to to redeem us. I think that's why C.S. Lewis said, your real new self will not come 
as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Everything else thrown in? Yes, everything else thrown in. We're told in the scriptures that if we belong to Christ, all things belong to us. Life and death and everything else, including the future life. You go to the book of Revelation, it honors the the lordship of Jesus. For example, in Revelation 11, it tells us, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Who reigns forever and ever? Jesus does. And then in the very next breath, Revelation says this, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, which is it? Does Jesus reign forever and ever? Or do they reign forever and ever? And the answer is yes. What God desired in the original setting of humanity and sharing his royalty with them and granting them the privilege of ruling this world with them, Jesus restores in us. So next time you're at the cocktail party and someone asks you, who are you? You can lean in, maybe look both ways and say with all seriousness, You're not going to believe it, but I am royalty. I've been crowned with glory and honor, and I will reign with Jesus forever and ever. I know you're not going to say that. I probably wouldn't have the courage or the guts to say something like this, but I guarantee you if you say it, you're going to have a captive audience there. I might be trying to figure out how to get away from you. But even if you don't say it, I would be satisfied if even for just a second the thought glanced your mind. I am royalty. And I am redeemed to be royalty. So that's the first point. The second two are going to go really fast. Let's consider each other as royalty. The second point is this. Let's believe everything we do now matters. God created us to live on this planet, to to love and to serve others. And so everything that we do matters if he is God. Rebecca McLaughlin said, if Christianity is true, we can look up and wonder why a God who made the galaxies also cares for you and me. But if there's no God, we can only look up and wonder why our lives have any point at all. Don't just take it from her. Take it from someone like Woody Allen, the disgraced filmmaker, who was an atheist, and he said, the universe is indifferent. So we create a fake world for ourselves, and we exist in that fake world, a world that, in fact, means nothing at all when you step back. It's meaningless, but it's important that we create some sense of meaning because no perceptible meaning exists for anybody. The best Woody Allen can do when he looks up at that night sky is to believe that he is all alone and that there is no meaning to anything that you do. So how do you cope with that? How do you not just end it on that moment? His counsel... Just fool yourself. Pretend like it matters. You know it really doesn't. But let's just play make-believe. How different the view that Jesus gives us. His apostle Paul said this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
How, th- how would things be different for you if tomorrow morning when you woke up and you went into work to serve others, in your mind you're thinking, I'm doing this because God has placed me here at this moment in this time. He's given me this opportunity and I want to do it for the glory of God. I'm reminded of that time I came across this article called Thank God for My Muddy Floor by Sharon James. And I was curious because I'm like, how would you thank God for something like that? That's just kind of weird. And I read the article, and she said, One day I was mopping the kitchen floor, and my mood was anything but grateful. I grumbled with each push of the mop, complained with each dip in the bucket. Here I am, mopping this floor again, and no one even appreciates it. I felt like this housework is never finished. Clean today, dirty tomorrow. Why do I even bother? And then she tells us that something flipped inside her. She said, Suddenly my grumbling turned into a song of praise and gratitude. Thank you, Lord for the privilege of mopping this dirty floor. Thank you for the health and the strength to hold this mop in my strong hands and to wrap my agile fingers around its handle. Thank you for the sight to see the crumbs, the dirt, and the spilled juice. Thank you for the sense of smell to enjoy the clean, fresh scent of soap in my bucket. Thank you for the many precious feet that will walk through this room and dirty dirty it up all again. And Lord, thank you for the privilege of having a floor to mop and a family to clean up after. My friends, whatever you do, whether it's large or small, do it all for the glory of God. And here's the last point of application. We have to end with this because the psalmist began with this and he ended with it. Let's join all creation in declaring our creator's worth. My friends, what if you really believed when you looked out on a clear night and looked at those stars, that there was a creator who not only exists, but is mindful of you, not only is mindful of you, but cares for you, not only cares for you, but sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to live and to die for you, and to come alive again, and to reign forever for you. How would that change things? Wouldn't that put a song in your heart? We sing these words over and over here at Mercy Hill Church. With all creation I sing, Praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. My friends, may that be the beat of your heart as you consider not only Psalm 8, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who is our everything.